We are in Nehemiah chapter 9, if you can turn in your Bibles, please. Nehemiah chapter 9. And Nehemiah is a narrative, as you turn there, it's a narrative about just a, a man who feels compelled to follow God's will. This is during a period after the kingdom of southern Israel was taken by the Babylonians, and they were uh, enslaved, and their city was destroyed, and they were taken away to another land, far from their, their homelands. And after about 70 years, they were allowed to return from exile. And even though they were able to return to Jerusalem, there were very few people there because the wall of Jerusalem was destroyed. And the wall was your safety. That was your security. That's what kept you um, safe from enemies. And the wall was destroyed. And Nehemiah, a man who worked at the King Artaxerxes, the Persian king's court, he felt a vision. God told him to rebuild the walls. And he did. And in chapter 1, Nehemiah encountered God. He mourned. He fasted as he saw the broken, uh, the broken city, the destroyed city of Jerusalem. Even though he wasn't a, a, a Torah scholar or a king, he felt compelled to do something. And in chapter 2, he was ready for the opportunity. He, the king asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, I want to go to Jerusalem, make the multi-hundred mile trek, and rebuild the walls. And he had a plan. Here's how long I'm going to be gone. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I need from the, the governor so I don't get killed. Here's what I need for wood. And in chapter 3, there, he rallies the people. He says, God has a plan for us. It's not to live in, in destruction. It's not to live in failure. It's not to live uh, in fear. But we're going to rebuild this together. And have through these builders, just regular guys with regular jobs, rebuilding the wall together. However, in chapter 4, there's, there's opposition and difficulty. Even though the wall is being rebuilt, there are enemies of God's people, like there are today, who will stop at nothing to destroy what God is doing. Then in chapter 5, there's internal struggle, showing that the people of Israel were enslaving one another and using usury to charge extreme interest so that people were suffering. And he corrected that and said, no, we need to be good stewards with our money and use this for God's kingdom. And in chapter 6, Nehemiah had increased opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, surrounding regions. They did anything they could to, to destroy his reputation, to destroy his life, to humiliate him and enslave him. But he persevered anyway, and the, and the wall was built. And in chapter 7, we talked about principles of life and leadership in bringing people back. So once the wall was rebuilt, about 50,000 people from Babylon decided to return to Jerusalem, to their homeland. Before they were scared, but with the wall being rebuilt, some came back. Not everyone, not even the majority, but this number, 50,000 people, did return. And then last week, they opened up the Torah with Ezra, a contemporary of Nehemiah, he opened the Torah and read it to the people. And it, they all worshiped the Lord by obeying him, by trusting him, by weeping, and by rejoicing. They rejoiced because this is a day they hadn't 
They had not opened the Torah or done its rules for a thousand years since Joshua, the son of Nun, crossed the Jordan. So this is the first time they're bringing everything back. And this is where we are in chapter 9. And it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bune, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, uh, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Parathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give you to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servants. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you, out of, brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way 
did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you, sub you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possessions of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. So they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. Sorry, I lost my place then. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amidst your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good, fruit, good gifts. Behold, we are slaves." And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. 
On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. God bless the reading of his word. That is by far the longest of the chapters in Nehemiah, as you can tell. So, we, it's a powerful chapter, though. And this chapter is about one thing. It's about repentance. It's about repentance. Following Jesus as a believer, both in, in their day and in our day, following Jesus is about repentance. Christians, believers, all people need to repent. So you see in verse 1, all the people gathered as a day of repentance, and they had, my first point, sorry, is that Repentance starts in humility and in purity. Repentance starts in humility and in purity. So, in the previous chapter, we talked about, remember, people were, all the people were weeping. He said, don't weep, right? Because it's a celebration because we're reading the Torah together. But then on this day, a couple weeks later, like, now, now is going to be our time to, to weep and to pray and to repent. So they picked this day, and they did several different things to, to stir up, to uh, cultivate this feeling of repentance. They did fasting, right? They put sackcloth, which is like a burlap, rough material, which is not comfortable at all. They, they had to wear. They put earth on their foreheads. And this was all designed to kind of shun from the physical comforts of this life. Right, because this is a day that they spiritually are saying, we are sorry. We did something terrible. We did something very wrong. We never listened to God. So in order to, to cultivate that attitude, we're going to remove from us all the physical distractions that we enjoy in life. There's many things that we can enjoy, and we do enjoy in life as believers. God has given us many things. But during this time of repentance for their people, they said, we're going to say no. We're going to say no to food. We're going to say no to comfortable, enjoyable clothing. We're going to put the bitterness of the earth on our heads so that we feel something. We're supposed to feel uncomfortable because repentance, when you confess your sin, it doesn't feel comfortable, it doesn't feel good. Because it's, it's, a, it's a shameful thing, it's a wrong thing. So in order to amplify that, they're doing this. And they also, they had no foreigners mingle with them because according to God's rule, the people of Judah, the, God's people are supposed to be separate from the other people. So during this time, they separated from the other people in the land. There's other people that were non-Jews living with them. But during this time, they said, we're going to separate ourselves as God commanded us. So, repentance is primarily about our relationship with God. It's about a relationship with God. But how do we, how do we keep that relationship going? How do we make that relationship strong? How do we correct that relationship when it's broken? Right? In chapter 1, you go back to chapter 1, confession was part of Nehemiah's original prayer. Where we talked about the Acts prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Well, this is kind of like a, a zooming in on confession alone. Right? Because they're confessing their sins before the Lord because this is a serious time. 
And they knew, they became aware of, as they read the Torah, that they were not keeping any of God's rules, any of God's laws. They were living totally void of Him. So they celebrated that day. But this is a time to confess sin, and it's a serious time. And we as believers, we must repent as well. We separate from the normal things of the world. We do things like fasting, which focuses on the spiritual. That is still true today. When there's sin in your life and you feel like God's shown something to you, fasting is a great response as you repent and change. We're saying no to the comforts of the physical and saying yes to the comforts of the spiritual because God is the one who can forgive our sins. And it's a serious time, and we need to think about it and pray about it. And what is so? If you're not a believer, to become a Christian, you have to repent. You have to say, "This world of sin and death that I loved and has brought me nowhere." You say no to that. Like, okay, I'm going to try Jesus now. The world has not satisfied me with all its desires and its promises. Their promises are lies. And the non-Christian says, you know, I'm going to turn to you, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. That's repentance. You're turning direction is literally what it means. You're turning from the world to God. And But that's not just, that doesn't just start when we become Christians and say, well, okay, my sins are free, right? I'm done sinning. Right? We're all done sinning. No, we're not done sinning. We still have sin in our lives and in our hearts. Even though God has given us victory over sin, there are still remaining pieces of our heart and our soul that is drawn towards this world and evil and sin that still exists in us. So we need to repent regularly. I think Martin Luther said that all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. So we need, every day we sin, every day I sin anyway, and every day I need to repent of things. I need to say, you know, this was wrong. This attitude I had, this yelling at my kids, this mean attitude towards my wife, this fear that I'm feeling, I repent of that. And some of those things, a time of, of silence and solitude and fasting can help encourage that. Because it's not a time that's flippant. Right? It's a time that's, that's important and serious. So repentance starts in purity and humility. It's humbling ourselves because it's hard. So we want to say that we're, we, things are good, that we're, we got it all together. We want to ask how you're doing and say, things are going amazing. And maybe they are going amazing, but maybe you're lying, right? Maybe things are going terrible and your life's burning down. But we want to pretend that things are good. But repentance is saying, no, things are not good in my life. Things are bad in my life, and I need help. That's what repentance is saying to God. So that's why it takes humility. Repentance is also about turning from sin. So they confess their sins and the sins of their fathers. Sin is, first of all, individual. Right? We all have sin in our lives. We're not sure what they are. 
I mean, you probably know what they are. I don't know what yours are, and you know what mine are. We all have sin in our lives, and it's individualized. But it also can be generational. And you can see this. Statistics show this. You know, people that are alcoholics usually have children that are alcoholics. What is it? That's a spiritual disease that's passed from generation to generation. So there might be generational sins in your family, issues or problems that go from father to son to father to son or mother to daughter that you might need to repent of and say, you know what, my dad had this addiction and I don't want to fall into the same addiction. So there is a generational aspect of sin because you can see in the, um, in the history of the Exodus that they outline in Nehemiah that their fathers were committing the same sins generation after generation, not trusting God, being cowards, running away, committing great blasphemies, right? Saying, you know what? We want to go back to slavery. Slavery is better than freedom. And this golden calf that we just made, that's our God. So clearly they had an issue with um, wanting to be slaves. It's generational. So there is a generational aspect of sin, and you might need to pray about that and talk about that. Maybe you're not sure with your family. You know, we all think of ourselves in this world because of our culture, the Western culture, as individuals. We're all little islands. But that's not true. That's not the biblical narrative at all. That's not most of human history either. We know that we most people got their jobs from their parents. They got their personalities. They also got their some of their, their sinful tendencies. So sin does have a generational aspect, and you might need to explore that and pray about that so that you don't fall into the same traps as your parents did. Whether they're believers or unbelievers, those sins can have a strong hold on our life. We pass down more than genetics. We pass down sin as well. Just like from our first, first father, Adam, we inherited a sinful nature. And those, that sinful nature manifests itself in certain ways depending on who your parents and your grandparents were. So this is something to think and pray about. This is different for each person, what that is. I'm going to jump around a little bit. In verse 16, it talks about all that God has done for them. They refuse to listen and take the lamb. Right? The land been in the wilderness for 40 years. Said, this is your land, go take it. And they said, no, we're out. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to be slaves again. That's sin. That's wrong. God said, you can defeat these people. Only a couple people, Joshua and one other, said, we can take them. Everyone else said, no, these people are giants. We can't take them. In verse 18, there's a golden calf that they worshipped. In verse 26, their fathers turned their back on God's law. In verse 28, it talks about doing evil again and again. In verse 29, it talks about stiffening their neck, meaning unwilling to listen or to turn. Right? They're, they're, it's a hardness of heart. They did not want to listen or change. In verse 30, it talks about the prophets warning them. God sent prophets. We talked about Jonah last year, right? One of God's people saying, you need to warn this people that bad things are going to happen, but they said no and they usually killed them for good measure. 
They were given to the hand of their enemies. In verse 33, 34 says, they and their fathers didn't listen. Right? Again, reading, we're not listening to you, God. They're, they're confessing their sin. We're not listening. We haven't listened. And then in verse 36, 37, they're showing the result. You know, we are slaves in this land. We've rebuilt this wall. We've instituted Torah worship. But instead of being our own free people in this land, we are slaves. We are slaves in this land. And all of our stuff goes to the taxes that go to kings that are far away from you. So this is such an important aspect because they were telling the history of the people from Abraham until that day. So it's a long chapter. They're saying, we need to go back to the beginning, us as a people, and that came from Abraham and all the things that God had done for them. The story of the Exodus, right? God picking Moses and leading them through signs and wonders through the desert. Bringing them into the wilderness, giving them a law, giving them a heritage and a people. So they're using it as a touchstone to say, this is who we were. This is who we are as a people, but we're, there's also sin here. People were rebelling even since that time, since the wilderness. Thousands of years ago, there's still this issue of sin that we didn't want to listen to God. And this is true for us as believers as well. As a Christian, we turn to Jesus. As these Hebrews, they turn to what they knew, their deliverance. Their deliverance was physical, right? God delivered them from the Egyptians. But our deliverance is so much more spiritual and so much more real because it means turning from Jesus' promise to deliver us, not just from an ancient enemy of the Pharaoh, but from the enemy of our hearts and the devil and this world. Jesus promises a much greater redemption and turning to take over our lives. But it continues. As I've said, Every time we sin, every time we do something wrong and God illuminates it to our hearts, God says, hey, you shouldn't have said this. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have thought this. That's an opportunity for us to repent. Get angry at our kids or our spouse. Complain about work. Speak evil. Lust after people or possessions. We need to, and, and, and thousands of others, right? We need to confess them to God. Not because we're not forgiven. We are forgiven. If you turn to Jesus, every sin, past, present, and future is forgiven. But we will not grow as believers. We will not change. We will not be more like Jesus unless we confess our sins to him. We confess our sins to him and say, God, that was wrong. Please forgive me. I want to change. I want to be more like you. That's what confession is to Jesus. We're confessing him. We're saying, God, I, 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 I made a mistake. I blew it. Help me. Change me. I don't want to be that same person anymore. I want to be the new person. I want to be the new creation. I want to be more like you, Jesus.
We won't grow unless we confess our sin. So when God makes you feel convicted or convict something or you feel guilty about something, that guilt can be a gift from the Lord saying, you need to change. And please, do not wait. The problem with sin is that it, it's deceptive, right? If we wait on it, we quickly begin to justify it, right? Your inner lawyer and my inner lawyer can say, you know what, that wasn't so bad because the circumstances, you know, it's, it's very circumstantial and I tried really hard and I did my best and I'm basically a good person, right? That inner lawyer comes out very quickly to defend us and say, ah, it wasn't that bad. So we've got to be quick to confess it because otherwise we'll start to, it'll start to fester in us. Right, right away, get before God. Because if you if you tolerate it, it will grow. It will become a bigger problem than you want it to be. And it becomes harder later than it is earlier. Right, as you, if you live with it, if you continue to sin in this way, it becomes much harder to let it go later than it is early on. So as soon as God says something to you, now you don't have to. Like I said, confession is before Jesus. Right, you don't need to to get a priest. It's Jesus is the one you confess to. You can do that anytime or anywhere. God convicts you of something. Say, God, please forgive me. Please help me. While you're driving your car or whatever you're doing. It can be anytime. But don't wait. Do not wait because it will grow. And if it grows, it will become a bigger problem and you won't know how to deal with it then. John Owen, a great reformer, said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Right? We are at war, ladies and gentlemen, as believers. And repentance is, is how we diffuse the, the attacks of the enemy. Is by repenting, by being humble and saying, God, I am wrong. And that's, and that's a struggle. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you because I, I love being right. I love it. But when we're wrong, we need to be right away saying, that was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And maybe that can include another person. If you sin against another person, you need to include them. Right? Confession is primarily for God because we sin primarily against God, but also other people may be included that you need to repent and say sorry to. Ask for forgiveness. So, repentance is turning from sin. It's also, repentance is turning to God. Most of this chapter, actually, is focused on God. Right? If you look in verse 5, it says, Blessed be God. Blessed be your glorious name. You are exalted above all blessing and praise. So the, the people have a good attitude of worship here. They, they know that God is their source and their sustainer, and he is good and he's kind to them. Right? And in verse 6, he's the only God. There's no other gods. He made everything, and everything worships him. The mountains, the seas, the creatures, everything worships the Lord. And they see this. They say this. They confess this. This is part of confession and repentance. It's not just turning away from sin, but it's turning towards God, which these people are doing. 
Right? It talks about in verse 7, God chose Abraham first, gave him a new name. Yes, Abraham was faithful, but God chose him first because Abraham's not an amazing person, right? He slept with his slave to have a, have a child, lied about who his wife was a couple times, right? Not, not, a, not a hero, but God chose him because of his love for him. God made a promise, it says, in verse 8, for the land of milk and honey to Abraham's offspring. And God kept his promise. He always keeps his promises. In verse 10, it talks about God's amazing signs and wonders for the people of God suffering in Egypt. Right? You see the Ten Commandments. You know what that's all about. All the plagues. Supernatural, turning the river into blood. God did all that to, to release his own people. How they went through the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, they all drowned. He led them, it says this twice, he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Pretty impressive stuff, right? I mean, I would love to have been there to see that. I feel like I would definitely believe if I saw that. But these people saw it and they didn't believe. So who knows? In, in verse 13 and 14, gave them the Ten Commandments and the rules, the 612 rules to live by. Verse 15 talks about bread from heaven, the manna, and water from the rock that he gave the people. In verse 17, it's about him being ready to forgive steadfast love even when they wanted to return to Egypt. I'd have been like, I'm done. You want to go back? Have a great time. Zap, you're all dead. No, but God said, even though you wanted to go back and said, we want to appoint a leader to go back to Egypt to be slaves, and God was still kind and loving and generous towards them. He did not leave them in the wilderness. Even with the golden calf, they were in the wild. Right? It's not like the movies in that sense. They are in like the, like the Sinai desert. God had to sustain them, and he chose to sustain them. Even when they were blaspheming against him, he still led them, showed them the way every single day. In verse 20, about God's spirit was sent to instruct them. God fed them and gave them water. In verse 21, it talks about sustaining them completely in the wilderness with their clothes and their sandals. It said their feet never swelled and their sandals never broke. For 40 years, that's impossible. But God, with God, it is possible. He sustained them. In verse 22, it says God gave them kingdoms. God multiplied their children, fulfilled his promise, even in their disobedience. Verse 24 and 25 says, subdued the people and gave them houses, vineyards, cisterns, olive orchards, fruit trees that they didn't make. They didn't do any of that stuff. They didn't plant any of that stuff. It was already there. It was already there. They just had to go in and use it and enjoy it. Filled with God's goodness. In verse 27, they cry, even, so even after they sinned and didn't listen to God's law, they cried out to God 
even though they knew they were wrong, they cried out to God in their sin, and God gave them, it says, saviors and deliverers. In verse 27. They would rejoice, but return to sin, and God would rescue them over and over and over. That is the goodness of God. That even in our sin, he rescues us over and over and over. All these verses are about God's goodness, faithfulness, power, love, mercy, and kindness. God is the only one worthy of worship in your life. These people realize that God's way is the way to life, and his rules they are for our good, for my good, for your good. They're not to keep anything from you. That's the lie. That's the lie from Genesis 3, right? That God's trying to keep something from you. No. God's trying to give you the best possible life. And his rules are the way to do that. He fills us with all that we ask, seek, and imagine, Jesus says. This is also repentance. It's not just turning from sin. Yes, we sin, and sin is heinous, and sin is, is evil. And we need to say no to it. We also need to say yes to God. If we just say no to sin, pride will fill our hearts. Because we're saying, well, we just don't need anything. That's not true. We're saying yes to Jesus. Saying yes to God. Turning back to God. If you are a believer, we're turning back to God again and again and again. The unbeliever turns to God as his, finally hope, his final hope. Right? Jesus, I hope that you... I believe that you are my Savior and my Deliverer. But for the believer, it's the same thing. We return back to the God. I know that you are a good God, and I'm sorry I sinned, and I want to have your life of abundance. Right? Jesus said, I came and I came that, that they might have life to the full, or life, the abundant life, some translations say. We're saying, God, your goodness and your kindness is what's good for me, is what I need, is what I want to be constrained by. I want to be. I want to fall in love with you again, Jesus. Be the way for me. Be the way, the truth, and the life for me. Because that's what we were made for. In conclusion, musicians, if you want to come up, Christians, we need to repent. <coughs> We need to change our direction. Sin of any kind can get in your way with your relationship with God. Sin of any kind. Because God is a holy, perfect, just God. So God does not tolerate sin. He does not like sin. And we need to go to Him in humility and in purity. Turning away from some of the comfortable situations that we surround ourselves with. We need to regularly focus on God as we turn to repent. We need to make this a normal part of our life. The Christian's life is one of repentance. We first confess our sins to God. We, I disobey God. I sin every day. So we need to repent every day. Maybe sometimes every hour. We must confess to Him. And sin is what drove Adam and Eve away. But sin is what killed Jesus. So sin is important. But as we confess our sin and forsake our sin and turn our back on sin, we will grow as believers. We'll become more in love with Jesus. And we also turn toward God because He is the only one 
who truly satisfies. He gives us good things and right paths to walk on. He fills our hearts. I'm preaching to myself too because the world is tempting, right? But we know that at your right hand, it says, our pleasures forevermore. Amen? He has and he knows what's best for us. We were made for God. And he will bring us back to himself. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the gift of repentance, God. Repentance sounds like such a terrible thing because we have to admit that we're wrong. But I know, Lord, that you say that repentance is a gift. It allows us to change. God, nobody on this earth has the power to change except for believers because you put your spirit inside of us and we can learn to say no to sin and say yes to you, God. And I pray for myself and I pray for everyone in this room that whatever that sin is in your life, in my life, that I'm thinking of, that you would give us, you would empower us to say no to it. To say, no, this is not the right way. I want to follow you, Jesus, completely. And then we would turn back to you, Jesus. You're the only one who can truly save us. You can give us a full, complete life. You can allow us to be the best versions of ourselves as we follow you, Jesus. So I pray that you would help all of us to continue to repent, to turn from sin, and turn towards you, Jesus. We ask for this in your great name. Amen. Amen. We're going to turn now to a time of communion. Communion 